Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 31 in our series for 2019, and today's date is Friday, August the 30th. First, I'll be talking to Dan Springer, the CEO of DocuSign, with its distinctive e-signature business. While environmental benefits are part and parcel with DocuSign's product offering for over half a million customers worldwide, Dan's personal interest in and commitment to philanthropy in the area of environmental causes pushes him to take the company's corporate social responsibility pursuits to the next level. And then I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver, reviewing the profit reporting season. It's a softer profit season, reflecting the state of the economy and global uncertainties. But now, let's talk to Dan Springer. Dan Springer, tell us about DocuSign. Absolutely. So DocuSign, uh, as most people know it, of course, is the company that really pioneered and now has a strong leadership position in e-signature. And that really is the heritage of the business, which allows people to, in a really seamless way, create agreements uh, and uh, and digitally uh, connect with their, whether it's their partners or their company's employment brand or uh, businesses or their customers that they want to create agreements. Um, And now we've really had a focus Uh, in the last year or so to broaden that footprint to broader what we call system of agreement. And the system of agreement says before people can sign an agreement, they need to generate that agreement, that document uh, per se. They also need to, once it's signed, take certain actions, like maybe set up a payment system. Uh, And then they need to manage all of those agreements and store them in a, you know, encrypted and, and, and safe way and be able to search across all their agreements to really manage their business. And that is the core, uh, is what DocuSign's all about. Uh, so basically, it all starts from the e-signature. Exactly right. Right, okay. Uh, you're actually very hooked on uh, environmental benefits as part and parcel of DocuSign's uh, product offering. That is very true, and it actually makes a lot of sense. If you think about the concept of e-signature, and replacing the need for people to not only have manual processes, which, of course, can add a lot of cost and inefficiency for business, but also removing the paper. And so uh, at a certain point, we started to become a pretty big business, and we realized we were um, obviating the need for people to uh, use so much paper. And in saving uh, paper, uh, the obvious, one of the obvious benefits from an environmental standpoint is you don't have to cut down as many trees. Uh, and that has a very positive impact uh, on our environment uh, overall, particularly, you know, as we deal 
with some of the realities uh, of global warming. So uh, it became sort of a natural uh, kind of component of what DocuSign was all about, to be focused on uh, saving our forests and having a positive impact on the environment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. But uh, what that means too, isn't it, that uh, DocuSign customers would have... um would be saving billions of sheets of paper. Exactly right. Yeah, and we've actually looked at it, and it's billions and billions uh, uh, over uh, the time that you know, DocuSign's been around. And in fact, we're now creating an ability for customers to understand exactly how big their positive environmental impact is. So when they complete a transaction with DocuSign, we have a counter that shows them. Uh, we, we actually measure it in pounds of wood uh, for them to see how much uh, tree, uh, you know, poundage they've, uh, they've saved. But also we, we take a look at the water savings because, you know, production of uh, paper is quite water intensive um, and it also uses a lot of energy. So there's carbon emissions that are related. So we, we work with our partners so they can understand the positive environmental impact uh, of using DocuSign. Uh, it would also uh, eliminate millions of pounds of waste, wouldn't it? There is significant uh, waste on the other end. Now, one of the things that happens in business settings, a certain portion, it, it varies by every business, um, that they recycle uh, the paper, which is great. And so we're not, um, uh, we're, we're big, you know, people who are very focused on the idea that people should recycle the paper, but um, not all paper gets recycled, as you know. Uh, so there's wastage that comes out of that system. So the better solution is to not have to use the paper in the first place, uh, save the trees the first time around. Uh, and that's, so that's our focus. Uh, and that's how we measure uh, those benefits and those uh, environmental uh, savings of trees uh, from uh, doing a digital signature or an electronic signature where you don't have to use paper in the first place. Now, you've actually set up a foundation, haven't you? We have. Uh, it's called the DocuSign Impact Organization. And uh, it's a foundation in the sense that we do uh, make economic grants from the foundation. But even more than that, it really is sort of at the ethos of who DocuSign is as a company. And impact actually started before we had been as financially successful and could put real money behind it. I'll, I'll give you some details on the money in a second. But we really were focused on getting our employees to be volunteering in the communities in which uh, we work uh, and live. And so, as an example, every year in November, we have a DocuSign Impact Day. And across the globe in all our offices, our employees do volunteer efforts uh, in their communities. And then we also give our employees three days off uh, in addition to that, where they can work uh, in, in charitable organizations, again, in their communities uh, across the globe. 
So that was really how Impact got started. And then as we were getting ready to go public, uh, we did something. We joined an organization called Pledge 1%. And the concept of Pledge 1%, uh, one of the components is take 1% of the equity value of your business and donate that uh, to non-for-profit causes that are, you know, in some way hopefully consistent or related to your business. Uh, and so at the time of uh, we did this, our, our value of our business was about um, $3 billion. So we took 1% of that, which is about $30 million, and made the commitment uh, that we would contribute uh, over a 10-year period $30 million uh, from our equity uh, in to solve uh, and, and work on uh, problems in our various communities. And because of our environmental focus, the first piece that we got started right away is what we call the Fight for Forests. And we announced that program at just January of this last year at the World Economic Forum with Dr. Jane Goodall. Uh, and our first contribution was to her organization, uh, the Jane Goodall Legacy Foundation, uh, to work on solving some of these longer-term uh, longer climate uh, uh, challenges that we face in the world today. Interestingly, the group from Jane Goodall's uh, organization in Australia was here in our office this morning. Uh, and we had them here. Because in addition to uh, making financial contribution, we also are going to, on uh, August 1st of this year, have a group of DocuSign employees help them uh, with some of their communications with their donors and talking about how, how we help recruit even more support from traditional donors uh, to the Jane Goodall Institute in Australia. And do you encourage your customers to go down this road as well? Yeah, we do. You know, I think to some extent, I wouldn't say we go to our customers and aggressively push them. We start off with a positive uh, sort of pat on the back. And we, as I said, we let them know just by using DocuSign, they're having, you know, a really powerful, uh, you know, economic impact. One of the things we do notice with our customers, though, some of them that are a little more um, focused on their sort of, you know, company social responsibility um, are, are already have programs. So like Walmart, Unilever, some of the big global companies have programs already, and they feather in their DocuSign usage uh, into that overall program. Uh, so there's a range, and there's other customers that are just happy to know that they're having a positive impact, but they don't necessarily do significantly more than what they already do with DocuSign. And others, like some of those uh, big companies I just mentioned, um, have substantial uh, programs on top of what they do with DocuSign. That's quite remarkable. Now, uh, how many uh, customers do you have globally? So as of the last quarter that just ended a couple of months ago, we had 508,000 customers. 508,000. That's that's quite extraordinary. Yeah. So half a million. Yeah, yeah, half, just over half a million customers. It is a lot. And one of the things that's interesting about DocuSign is we serve from the smallest companies, sort of, you know, individual mom-and-pop companies, they can come to us on the web where they don't actually even have to call uh, someone from DocuSign. You can just go to the website and sign up and download uh, the app and, and have an account uh, and be what we call a web and mobile customer, and they pay us each month, or they can get a cost benefit if you sign up for a year at a time. Um, because the software is so easy to use, you can be doing your agreements digitally uh, just uh, immediately in the same day. We also have um, some of the largest companies in the world uh, are uh, DocuSign customers, and that's you know uh, giant banks from around the world like J.P. Morgan, but also Commonwealth Bank uh, here in Australia, which is the largest bank uh, in this country. Uh, most of those uh, large companies tend to be DocuSign customers as well.
And uh, and you you said you mentioned Walmart before as well. Walmart is a very substantial uh, uh, customer of ours as well. Uh, so, uh, what are your plans for the future with uh, DocuSign? Well, I think you know the the one when I think about our big you know kind of growth orientation going forward is around this further product development. And remember at the beginning, I mentioned yeah, signature is as you put it where it all started, but this broader system of agreement and really becoming as we call it the DocuSign Agreement Cloud. Uh, that's the company we want to be. We want to be the agreement cloud company. So as people say, I want to create agreements of any kind with my employees, my my customers, my partners, my suppliers, et cetera, that they drive all those agreements through our agreement cloud. And that means more than just signature. It also means that the generation of agreements, the storage of those agreements, uh, the advanced technical uh, capabilities to search those agreements and sort of manage that process uh, around them. That's all uh, in the product vision. And then the other big growth lever is while we do have, as you said, over half a million customers, we think sort of every business can be a DocuSign customer uh, because of the nature uh, of our ability to serve from the very small to the very large. So we have a huge growth ambition. Uh, our revenue you know, guidance for, for billings and revenue guidance for this calendar year is about a billion dollars U.S., um, but we think that's just a small percent. And there's more uh, in the magnitude of a $50 billion uh, addressable market for us to go after. So the other big thing, we just want to continue to grow and scale our business. You know, our business is growing uh, almost 40% a year uh, so far this year. Our business internationally outside of the U.S. is growing faster. In fact, in Australia, the business has uh, doubled in the last sort of 18 months. So we're, um, we're aggressively investing uh, uh, in Australia and other countries as well uh, to drive continued growth. Well, Dan, it's been fascinating talking to you, and thank you very much for your time. And now let's talk to AMP Capital Chief Economist, Shane Oliver. Well, Shane, what's your assessment of the profit reporting season so far? Uh, to be honest with you, it's been a fairly soft profit reporting season. In fact, the number of upside surprises on our on our counts is uh, equal to the number of downside surprises, or roughly equal. And in fact, we've seen the lowest number of upside surprises since uh, back in 2012. Um, on top of that, as we've gone through the reporting season, we've seen more downgrades than upgrades uh, coming through. Mind you, a lot of that relates to resources companies, which weren't quite as strong as had been expected. And, of course, uh, earnings growth through this reporting season, through the last financial year, is largely dominated by the resources sector, um, with the rest of the market actually going backwards to the tune of 2%. So it hasn't been the best reporting season. <clears throat> and in fact, uh, I, I guess it sort of speaks to the, to the ongoing softness in the Australian economy. And uh, so how many companies have actually come short of market expectations? Well, on my count, uh, about 36% of companies have uh, come in less than expected, and that compares to about 37% coming in better than expected. Now, mind you, the norm is that we see about 44% of companies surprising on the upside. And we haven't seen that now since uh, since back in 2018, since last year. So it's not a disaster. This is nowhere near as weak as we were seeing, say, back in uh, 2008. Back in February 2008, we had only 28% of companies surprising on the upside. But nevertheless, it is the weakest um, reporting season in terms of beats, in terms of number of companies surprising on the upside since 2012. And uh, that that is that is quite significant. Now, uh, so you're saying a lot of this is reflecting the state of the economy? 
Yeah, basically what we're seeing here is a relatively soft economy. Um, there are some companies that have done reasonably well, uh, JB Hi-Fi, um, a few of the retailers were a little bit uh, upbeat that the stimulus payments or the tax cuts rather and the rate cuts will help the economy. But then by the same token, you can see the uh, the soft impact or the impact on uh, of the soft economy on, on stocks like Qantas and others um, coming through. So yeah, the bottom line is we've got a fairly soft economy. Growth has stepped down a notch over the course of the last year and there's also global uncertainties which, for example, BHP referred to as um, likely weighing on commodity prices going forward. Right. Okay. Okay. And of course, uh, the uh, the issue with the global economy now is the trade war. That's right. And we've seen that trade war steadily escalate, or, or dramatically escalate, I should say, through this month. Um, there, through much of this year, there was some hope that trade talks would resolve the issue. That seemed on track until about May. Then, of course, uh, that seemed to fall apart with Trump uh, ramping up the tariffs again. There were hopes we'd, we'd see another round of trade talks, which we started to, but no sooner than they started, they seemed to come to an end with more um, tariff hikes announced August the 1st by Donald Trump, then China responding in the last few days to those tariff hikes, and, of course, uh, more tariff hikes again from Donald Trump in the last few days, basically a 5% across-the-board increase in, China, in tariffs on imports from China. And, of course, uh, Donald Trump lashing out, saying, you know, what do we need China for anyway? He's ordering US companies to to uh, source their products elsewhere. So um, this is particularly worrying, um, this uh, this whole trade war issue. And, you know, the great scheme of things, you could say, well, you know, it's still nowhere near as bad as what we saw in 1930, where America put a 20% tariff on all imports and other countries, of course, responded. And that, of course, ultimately made the Great Depression great, if you want to call it that. Um, we're not on that scale yet, um, but the longer this goes on, the bigger the negative impact uh, will be on the global economy, which, of course, is the uh, interesting point for Donald Trump because he does seem sensitive to what share markets do. Uh, we've seen time and time again where he does these things, lashes out, um, often in a bit of a bit of a rage at the time, and then, of course, uh, share markets fall and then he tries to backpedal a little bit. So he is sensitive as to the reaction in financial markets, and he knows that a big fall in share markets can be associated with a recession. And that, of course, is a worry for him because he wants to get re-elected next year. So I guess you could argue, well, you know, hopefully there is some light at the end of the tunnel because the election is looming. Um, he won't want a recession going into that election. But by the same token, we're still uh, still waiting for some for some positive signs. And yet, they're, so far, they're thin on the ground. Well, what was alarming was he said over the weekend that uh, he was ordering U.S. companies to get out of China. He did. These, that was his initial reaction on uh, Friday uh, U.S. time or Saturday morning our time, if you like, um, to the news that China was putting tariffs, raising tariffs on $75 billion worth of imports from the U.S. So his initial reaction was was extremely negative ordering U.S. companies to get out. I don't think it's quite that simple. <laughs> Things that work quite that simply. And uh, saying, yeah, what do we need them for? I'm going to be responding later in the day. And then, of course, later in the day, uh, he did announce that 5% across the board tariff hike. And then, of course, over the weekend, he was asked, uh, has he had any regrets regarding the uh, the trade war? And uh, he said, yes, he has had some re regrets. And then it was left at that. But then a, a White House... Um, the White House clarified that his regret was that maybe he didn't increase tariffs by more. Now, it's unclear as to whether 
he's referring to the experience of the last uh, year or so, or whether he's referring to the most recent uh, 5% across the board tariff increase. So that just adds to the air of uncertainty around what Trump will do and what that means for markets. Well, in effect, what he's doing is he's, um, he's pouring more petrol on the blaze. He's, uh, he's not helping here. And if you want to know why uh, the, the, there's uncertainty about the global economy and why share markets have you know, come down again lately, it, it largely writes to the trade war. Um, you know, I, I, kind of, I, I think that when you look back through history, uh, we were getting into a nice place in the early part of last year. The global economy seemed to be back on track. Uh, growth was improving. We we're gradually starting to see signs of wages growth pick up and eventually inflation lift off away from the deflation fears that we'd seen, been seeing over the last few years. Uh, looked like quantitative easing, extreme monetary policy measures in the big economies were working. And then, of course, uh, that all started to fall apart from about the middle of last year when this trade war really started to escalate and that started to weigh on confidence and, of course, on Chinese economic growth. So th- this is having a huge impact on the global economy. I don't think it's it's uh, inevitable we're going to recession. I think we can avoid that, but th- that risk is there. The longer this trade issue keeps escalating, the more the, and the bigger the negative impact will be on business confidence and therefore on investment plans, businesses don't know, you know where to source their, their factories. You know, if, if uh, Trump says, oh, well, you don't, don't produce in China, and then they think, oh, we'll go to Vietnam, you know, Trump one day down the track might just switch his focus to Vietnam. Um, likewise with Mexico. This is all creating a lot of angst amongst U.S. businesses, and you have seen a decline uh, in U.S. business investment expectations since the middle of last year. So that's, that's not a good thing. And, of course, we had uh, Philip Lowe uh, talking at uh, Jackson Hole saying that uh, issuing a stark warning that there's only limited capacity to protect the global economy from uh, major political shocks like the trade war. That's right. Um, And I think we all understand that. And there's probably nothing new in that. And Jerome Powell, the US Fed chair, said there's not a lot that monetary policy can do here. It can help, but it's not going to uh, resolve the trade war. Um, which I think was pushing back against Donald Trump, saying you should cut interest rates 100 basis points. So, yes, central banks can ease policy, and they probably will. We'll see more easing from both the Fed and the RBA and the ECB and what have you, um, and that will help the global economy and ultimately, I think, help help us avoid recession. But we really do need to see some resolution of this trade issue, and uh, that, that, I think, is the big problem here, that you know we've shifted away from just focusing on the economics to to these political statements, and that's causing a lot of angst and, and um, uncertainty on the part of businesses. Um, if businesses become more and more uncertain, then obviously that will flow on to consumer spending, um, and that's not a good thing. So there needs to be some resolution of this issue pretty soon, I think. So the resolution has to come politically uh, to these issues, which, was, which is, after all, as you say, affecting our profit reporting season. Yeah, we do need a political resolution. I, I think at the end of the day... Uh, the US and China need to resolve this trade dispute. And that's, uh, that's, uh, that's the big issue here. Are they at that point yet? Um, we have seen Donald Trump get nervous on several occasions when share markets come down sharply. That sends a signal to him. He is uh, aware of the, the threat to the US economy, ultimately, and he's probably also aware that he won't get re-elected if the US economy is in recession. So there is that. Um, that that's where it has to come from. I think he really has to get back on the phone to Xi Jinping and try and resolve this issue. But you know, the, the question then becomes: Are the Chinese going to be receptive now? They might say, "Well, 
you know, let's wait till after the election and, and maybe we'll get a more um, um, a steadier president to negotiate with. Perhaps so that, that's that's obviously a, a bigger short-term uncertainty. I guess in the meantime, you know, those lower interest rates, providing we avoid recession, they do help and they do help share markets to the extent that uh, it, it makes share markets cheaper if you're getting uh, less than 2% out of a bank deposit. Uh, and these days it's a lot lower than that in many, many cases, then the share market yielding uh, 5 or 4.5% dividend yield and grossed up gets closer to 6%, then the share market remains quite attractive. But that's not necessarily going to help on days when there's bad news about global trade. Well, Shane Oliver, it's very, very helpful to talk to you, and I'm sure all our listeners would listen to that with fascination, and thank you very much for your time. It's been my pleasure, Leon. Thank Leon. you. So what's happening in the news? Well, Donald Trump has triggered a wave of confusion about China, but the trade war continues. First, at the G7 meeting, Trump poured more petrol on the blaze by saying he regretted taking harsh measures. Then, his people told the press he only wished he'd raise the tariffs higher. It was a head-spinning about-faced. The confusing change reflects Trump's wildly shifting approach to China, which has had a major effect on the US economy and could affect his re-election chances next year. Then the next day, Trump insisted talks had restarted with China, but details remain elusive. We'd gotten two calls, and very, very good calls, Trump told reporters at the Group of Seven summit. Very productive calls. They mean business. They want to be able to make a deal. Trump later clarified that the calls had occurred as recently as Sunday evening. Other administration officials were more circumspect, and it wasn't clear how substantive any interaction had been. Chinese officials didn't confirm the major progress Trump had cited. Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman Geng Zhuang said he was not aware of any such phone calls with Trump. For more than a year, Trump has insisted that China needs to make major structural changes in their practices, particularly related to intellectual property, government subsidies and currency. He's also pushed Beijing increasingly to purchase billions of dollars in US farm products, something his advisers hope will give him a political boost domestically. It wasn't clear precisely why Trump believes the deal with China is finally close. He's made such statements before, only to attack Beijing days or even hours later. Trump has seen his poll numbers sag ahead of his 2020 re-election bid, as consumers sour on his aggressive trade stance against China. Trump has bet his re-election chances on a strong economy, and with fears of a recession growing among some economists, he has insisted fears of an economic slowdown are overblown. And with a trade war between the United States and China spiralling, and world leaders gathering in the G7 summit, Australia's central bank governor, Philip Lowe, has issued a stark warning that there's only limited capacity to protect the global economy from a period of major political shocks. Lowe used a contribution at the closing session of a retreat for central bankers in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, to argue that political shocks, like the trade dispute which imperils global growth, the turbulence created by Brexit and protests in Hong Kong were turning into economic shocks. Dr Lowe criticised the global rush to lower interest rates as ultimately counterproductive, but acknowledged the lack of political stability was making the pressure difficult to resist. The RBA governor said central banks could not neutralise political instability. Lowe said infrastructure investment and structural reform in economies around the world would have more impact than cutting interest rates, but with these three levers stuck, 
the challenge we face is monetary policy is carrying too much of a burden. While Dr Lowe refrained from mentioning Donald Trump by name, he referred to Friday's tumultuous market turmoil unleashed by the President's extraordinary attacks on the US Federal Reserve boss, who he suggested may be a bigger enemy than Xi Jinping, and a bizarre demand that US companies withdraw from China. The President's tantrum against Fed Chairman Jerome Powell stunned many participants at the annual three-day Jackson Hole Symposium over the weekend. At the same time, IMF Chief Economist Gita Gopinath has acknowledged that the fast escalating economic and trade battle between the US and China may be reaching a point of no return and that Australia could face significant impacts. Professor Gopinath warned that global growth was sluggish and the outlook is precarious, but doesn't believe a recession is imminent, despite yet another inversion in the benchmark US yield curve over the weekend. Speaking on the sidelines of the US Fed's annual Jackson Hole Symposium, which was heavily overshadowed by President Donald Trump's war of word against Fed Chairman Jerome Powell, the International Monetary Fund's research department head questioned whether global central banks can shield the world from a downturn. And budget cuts risk driving Australian government investment in productivity-boosting research to among the lowest levels in the developed world, according to global figures. This contrasts with Treasurer Josh Frydenberg's call for business to forego share buybacks and special dividends, and instead invest in innovation to help grow their companies. Mr Frydenberg has angered business leaders. The Coalition has slashed $4 billion from research and development tax incentives in the past two federal budgets, while clawing back millions of dollars in previously approved claims. An analysis of Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development figures shows sharply falling government incentives are already well below those of Slovenia and Greece. Australia fell from 114 to 107 in 2017-18, according to an OECD index of R&D investment by government. The index, measured through purchasing power parity, is expected to drop again once a 2019 budget cut of $1.3 billion comes into effect, taking Australia further below Mexico and the Netherlands, which scored 134 and 114 respectively. The cuts have helped drive Australia's overall R&D investment below that of Europe, China, the United States, South Korea and Japan. And some two-thirds of women working in science, technology, engineering and maths careers say their views or choices are devalued because of their gender, while 40% have borne the brunt of sexist jokes or offensive comments, a survey has found. The survey by the Male's Champions for Change advocacy group also found that nearly half of women working in STEM sectors had experienced role stereotyping over the past two years, and nearly one-third reported a preoccupation with physical appearance. As a result, 54% of the women surveyed said they'd considered leaving their STEM role, against 45% of men. The results raised concerns that the gender equality gap would be widened, given the increasing importance of STEM occupations, while innovation efforts could be stymied. And a slew of Australia's largest infrastructure assets, including airports, docks and a train station, have set carbon emission reduction targets for the first time, as part of a coordinated push led by industry superannuation fund manager IFM Investors. The targets set by Melbourne Airport, Brisbane Airport, Ausgrid, New South Wales Ports, Port of Brisbane, NT Airports and Melbourne Southern Cross Station aim to eliminate 200,000 tonnes of carbon emissions annually by 2030. 
IFM Investors, which manages funds on behalf of industry super funds, said the emissions reductions across all major local assets was the same as removing almost 70,000 cars from the roads. IFM has a major stake in each of the assets, worth a combined $10 billion, and drove what it says is an unprecedented initiative over concern that climate change and associated weather events would damage those investments over the long term. The assets will work together on methodology through the term of the short-term targets, while IFM says it will reassess their targets and hold them accountable through its representatives on each of their boards. The reductions will be achieved through a combination of solar generation, building, lighting and transport efficiency and other energy efficiency projects. And the burden of mortgage debt is leading to mental distress and worsening mental health outcomes for older Australians who are now often carrying unsustainable mortgage repayments into retirement, a new study has found. Average mortgage debt among older Australians has blown out by 600% since the late 1980s, after accounting for inflation, the study says. And nearly half of all homeowners aged between 55 and 64 are still paying off a mortgage, up from 14% 30 years ago, according to the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute study. Food Bank South Australia has been approached by banks wanting to refer their clients to the charity in the hope it will prevent people from defaulting on mortgage payments. And oil and gas giant BP has announced a partnership with David Jones that will see sushi and rotisserie chooks made available in selected petrol stations. Over the next six months, BP will transform five petrol stations each in Sydney and Melbourne to exclusively stock products from David Jones Food. The new range will feature over 350 products, including food for now and food for later options, as well as fresh items like sushi, sandwiches, free-range rotisserie chickens, pre-prepared meals and long-life groceries. BP has eight major partnerships around the world similar to the David Jones deal, including with retailer Marks & Spencer in Britain. And the profit reporting season continues. West Farmers reported earnings before interest and tax of $2.97 billion led by hardware powerhouse Bunnings with $1.62 billion compared to $1.5 billion last year. Electricity Network's owner Sparks Net Profit sank 9.1% to $52.8 million in the six months ended June 30, while underlying net profit dropped 12.2% to $51.1 million. Caltex Australia has posted a 54% drop in benchmark profit for the first half, with bottom line net earnings dropping to $155 million in the six months ended June 30, from $383 million a year earlier. Embattled wealth manager IWF's profit was down 67.7% to $28.6 million. Viva Energy's first half net earnings fell 51.3%, weighed down by difficult conditions in refining and weak retail margins. Underlying net profit total $78 billion for the six months ended June 30, down from $129.6 million a year earlier. Boral's revenue edged 0.1% lower to $5.86 billion in financial 2019, and bottom line net profit after tax fell 38% to $272.4 million. Boral trimmed its final dividend payout to $0.13.5 cents from $0.14 cents a year ago. Fortescue posted a better-than-expected $3.18 billion profit. Ooh Media reported net profit after tax of $9 million for the first half of calendar 2019, down from $12 million in the same period last year. Wealth manager Evans Dixon has reported full-year underlying earnings of $37.1 million, down 26% as lower revenues in its advice and funds management division weighed on the group.
Homeware retailer Adair's sales rose 9.4% to $344.4 million in the 12 months ended June. Earnings before interest in taxo slipped 4% to $43.4 million. Southern Cross Asterios audio business, including radio and podcasting, revenue was up 2.4% over the 2018-19 financial year to $453.4 million. Earnings before interest, tax, depreciation and amortisation inched up 0.6% to $148.6 million for the segment. Childcare services provider G8 Education reported underlying earnings before income and tax of $51.6 million for the six months ended June 30. Australia's biggest virtual mobile network operator, Amazim's earnings before interest, tax, depreciation and amortisation was down 14.5% to $47.3 million. Plumbing Fittings Group Reliance Worldwide posted a net profit after tax of $133 million, up from $66 million for the 12 months ended June 30. Superloop has announced a full-year loss of $72.1 million, resulting from a major write-down and will pay no final dividend. Plus-size fashion chain City Chic Collective has posted a 25% increase in underlying earnings, fuelled by strong online sales growth and the opening of new brick-and-mortar stores in Australia. Biotech company Nanosenix announced a 137% increase in post-tax profit of $13.6 million, beating expectations of a $9.8 million profit. Satellite communications provider Speedcast announced a US $175.5 million or $260 million Aussie statutory first half loss due to a US $155 million write-down in the goodwill of its non-government sector. ASX-listed poultry provider Ingham's announced a 10% rise in net profit for 2019 to $126 million. Northern Star recorded net profit after tax of $154.7 million for the year to June 30, compared to $194.1 million in 2017-18. Sealink's net profit after tax for 2018-19 rose to $21.5 million from $19.6 million. Specialist investment platform Hub24 reported underlying net profit after tax of $6.8 million for the 2019 financial year, a 27% increase on the previous year. A to B Transport, the company formerly known as CampCharge, swung to a net profit after tax of $11.8 million. LiveTiles posted a loss after tax for the financial year of $42.77 million. This loss is 93% larger than FY18's loss of $22.06 million. Organic, baby formula and snack maker Bellamy Australia's earnings before interest tax, depreciation and amortisation plunged 47% to $34.9 million and net profit more than halved to $22.1 million. Oz Minerals suffered a 65% fall in half-year profits to $43.9 million. Afterpay went deeper into loss to support its growth, with an after-tax loss of $42.9 million, higher than $9 million a year earlier. Virgin Australia reported a group statutory loss after tax of $315.4 million, which included a write-down for Tiger Air and VA International, a $158.8 million hit from fuel and foreign exchange. And the Future Fund has delivered a strong annual return of 11.5% as its assets swelled to $162.5 billion at the end of the financial year. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Peter Nguyen-Brown, co-founder and executive director of independent software vendor Live Tiles. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James, looking at what's ahead in the week for markets. And of course I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ, 
on Facebook and on LinkedIn. If you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care. Be good. And looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.